Welcome to the Old Paths Podcast. My name is Cody Justice. Uh, this evening, I'm joined by Benjamin Hicks. Benjamin, how are you doing, brother? Doing really well, brother. Looking forward to the conversation tonight. Me too, me too. So uh, this evening, we're going to continue on with our critique of 1689 federalism. This will be part two. We may have another part after this as well. And we're going to pick up right where we left off. Michael can't be with us uh, today. Lord willing, he'll be able to join us in a number of weeks. So um, just wanted to throw it your way first, Benjamin. Is there anything that we mentioned last time? We talked about the visible and visible church. We talked a little bit about um, substance and administration. We talked about principles of hermeneutics, like clear and unclear. Is there anything that um, you think would be useful to touch on before we begin afresh or, or anything we didn't touch on that has come to your mind since then? Yeah, well, in Lord's Providence, I'm actually preparing uh, a sermon on infant baptism this uh, coming Lord's Day. And um, yeah, I think that... Uh, what I found is that in my own spiritual life, this has been a very edifying thing to consider. I know sometimes maybe the the temptation is to treat some of these things like they're polemical footballs or things that can <laughs> inflate our pride. But even as I was studying the, the matter that um, for the sermon, I was just struck by the the goodness and the grace of God in His covenant of grace and uh, the way that unfolds throughout the whole Bible. So, yeah, I, I hope that um, that is on, on our hearts, that we be getting deeper in our relationship with the Lord as we study these things. And that's really something we know we share with our Baptist brothers as well. So we uh, interact this not in a spirit of tearing people down, but with a spirit of iron sharpening iron and desiring the glory of Christ as we seek to rightly divide the word of truth. So that's the attitude I took away from the last episode, and uh, I hope that that will continue going forward. Amen, brother. Thank you for that. That's an excellent reminder. I appreciate that myself, and um, I think it's good, too, to uh, remember where we came from. The Lord says to the Israelites, uh, you shall not oppress a stranger. You yourselves were strangers in the land of Egypt, so we can save ourselves. I know that we both gave our history a little bit last time we used to be Baptists, so we understand what it's like. We don't say that pejoratively, but sometimes these things just seem so very foreign, uh, but and it takes a while to uh, grasp them. So we hope um, that we can help further clarity and profit the brethren. So let's begin. Um, we're going to look at Dr. Renahan, Dr. Samuel Renahan on the Abrahamic Covenant. And this is a quote from his work, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom, from page 94. Dr. Renahan says, quote, Consequently, this covenant can be classified as a covenant based on works or obedience, end quote. Mm -hmm. And in particular, he has in view the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Renahan makes more of a cumulative case with Abraham, um, which is contrasted, at least in my reading, I may have misread, with Nehemiah Cox, who seems to sharply split Abraham between Genesis 12 and 15 on the one hand and Genesis 17 on the other. Renahan may do that as well. Dr. Renahan may do that as well. Um, but what do we think about this idea, Benjamin, that the Abrahamic covenant can be classified as a covenant based on works? I would assume by that they also mean a covenant of works. 
What do you think of that? Right. I think that, uh, you know, I've not read uh, Dr. Renahan's work, although I understand he's, uh, he's a great scholar. I think perhaps um, looking at the phrase you've quoted there, uh, I think we, we may be kind of running up against um, the, the, the cross currents of biblical theology and systematic theology, because of course, once we hear about a covenant of works, right, that has a particular meaning in the history of reform and systematic theology, where we would be talking about that covenant made with Adam and his posterity, the condition of which being perfect and perpetual obedience to the law of God as a condition for life, or for the punishment of death that followed upon his, his disobedience. And uh, we would in, in particular be looking at the, uh, the great teaching of the whole scripture, but especially books like Romans and and Galatians and seeing that really there you have an antithesis between covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Um, now, um, yeah, so that that would just be the the warning sign, which is like, what does he what does he mean by that? Um, now, I yeah, think, yeah. So, so that would be the the question that comes to mind. I would just wonder, you having read him, uh, where where do you you see him entering into that discussion? Yeah, I know that I have heard, either heard him or read him. I can't recall. It's been a while. Um, it's probably in his book, now that I think about it. I believe I read it, where he does say that the Mosaic Covenant is an organic continuity of the Abrahamic Covenant. And I know what he says of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, he says very clearly that it was a covenant uh, of works. And he means not the covenant of works made with Adam, but a covenant of works, very peculiar to the Israelites respecting life in the land of Canaan, the temporal life, not eternal life. We need, to, we need to have that clear in our minds. So if he's saying that that's an organic continuity of Abraham, it seems to me the plain deduction would be he views Abra the Abrahamic covenant in the same way, namely that when he says a covenant based on works, he means a covenant of works respecting temporal life, temporal blessings. And if you go down to that second quote there, um, this is from his the same book, just a few pages later, page 97. He says, the Abrahamic covenant is first and foremost an earthly covenant of national earthly promises. So you're hearing right away that emphasis in the foregrounding of what we saw last time. And we're going to continue to see this, this earthly, national, temporal aspect of the covenant. Does that help clarify it for you? Yeah, and, and um, I think that, um, yeah, I, again, I think that uh, what there's, there's a, there's this all, always dialogue between the, the biblical theo theology and the systematic theology. So, um, yeah, when we, when we enter into this dialogue, then, then we have to be careful we're not crossing uh, each other like ships in the in the dark, right? So, um, yeah, I think that when we speak about the relationship of, let's begin with the new covenant, right? Which I hope we would be able to get some common ground on. When we speak of the new the new covenant in Christ, um, and we and which I, I would say is synonymous with the gospel, and um, in in one important sense. Then, if we're if we're talking about what we would understand in the in the way in which we are saved, we're talking about uh, 
It's only the righteousness of Christ that saves us. It's only the obedience of Christ that saves us. It's very different than that covenant in which uh, Adam was in. And by that, we do not mean that the works do not enter in, that indeed we are not saved by our works, but we are saved unto works as those fruits of our salvation, as indeed our, um, our debt of gratitude to the Lord for his salvation to us. We are not saved to lawlessness, but but to the, the keeping of the law according to um, the holiness of, of a born-again believer. And so what when uh, when we're speaking about um, God's dealings with believers, his, his elect people under the old covenant, right? then uh, I'm I'm immediately getting some concerns if if it's the case that either there's the explicit statement or the implication that the essential uh, standing of a of a believer who is saved in the old covenant was different. So um, kind of going back to what we said last time, um, we can recognize differences. Yeah, we can recognize that there is a, a um, there is a series of promises connected with the land of Canaan, and we can have a discussion about how that um, had a particular function, whether temporal to accomplish a particular providential purpose, or redemptive as it um, made made way for Christ who was to come. We can talk about uh, it as a typological function as well, picturing the um, the internal inheritance of God's elect and the you new know, heavens, the new earth. But ultimately, when we're talking about the substance of the covenant, we're talking about that which is which is essential and and uh, binding up upon um, salvation in all in all times, which is it's only dependent upon Christ, either the Christ who is to come or the Christ who has come. And the the, um, the way we would speak about our salvation is that we are saved by faith in Christ and not by works. And as we look through the book of Galatians and Romans, I think what we're what we're seeing is that the, the antithesis is always um, the covenant of works as opposed to that covenant that we are in as Christians, but also that it is the same covenant with Abraham. Yeah, thank you for that, um, brother. I I agree 100%. It's the same gospel. I mean, God's the one who really comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, preaching the gospel. In you shall the families of the earth be blessed. Paul tells us, Galatians 3, I believe, you know, that that is the gospel. Um, and I don't see any reason to bifurcate Genesis 12 and 15 on the one hand, and then Genesis 17 on the other hand, like Cox does, and say, well, this is something totally fundamentally different. And inevitably, what you create then, and we're going to see this when we get to the Mosaic Covenant too, is you create this situation where God is relating to a person religiously in two different ways. In the gospel way, Genesis 12 and 15, and then in this temporal life way, and they're distinct. Um I, I think this gets at an element, too, that is inevitable, whether you're going to be a paedo-baptist or a, an anti-paedo-baptist or baptist, you are going to have some kind of a duality. 
And um, I raised last time that I do think Baptists have to impose a bifurcation somewhere to maintain their system. And I remember you made similar similar comments. And um, we also have, I don't want to call it a bifurcation, but a distinction when we're talking about substance and administration and um, what's primary and what's secondary, so on and so forth. There is, in that sense, a, a duality. Let's go into his just his uh, last quote here same book this is page 99 dr renahan says quote from its inception the abrahamic covenant is not just anticipating the new covenant but carrying it within itself the old covenant is pregnant with the new covenant it promises the new covenant because it promises the mediator of the new covenant to be born from their midst the abrahamic covenant provides christ christ provides the new covenant so that paragraph, brother, is there anything there that's immediately disagreeable to you? I, I don't believe so, brother. Maybe I, I just need to, to reflect on it more or read it in its context. But um, as I found also with uh, Pascal Denault's book, the, the brother that we mentioned last time, it, it feels like when, when they uh, speak in this way, there's a fair bit of overlap in what you're saying. Because... Um, where, where we say that the old covenant, in particularly in Abraham, but but uh, afterward as well and beforehand as well, is is revealing um, the promise of Christ, right? And by means of that revelation, the Holy Spirit is applying the benefits of Christ to them. And I don't know that we're we're speaking very differently from one another on that particular point. Um, yeah, what I'll. Uh, if you want to follow up on that, that's okay. I do have a question about uh, Dr. Renahan's uh, work that you might be able to answer, though. But if you have, a, if you want to give feedback on that first, uh, I'll, that'll be fine. Yeah, let's let me respond to that um, just briefly, and then we can go to the, your question about his book. We're getting to what we raised last time, which are these differences in language um, and emphases. I think, and. There is an overlap because a lot of times conceptions are maintained or concepts are maintained, but language is changed. We're going to see that more as we go through it. But um, you use the word revealed, and that's that is a common word that they'll use. And you'll notice they'll use that typically uh, in place of administered. And in fact, um, Dr. Renahan, toward the end of his recent interview where he was with Brandon Adams and Richard Barcellos, uh, that 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 interview is called Two-Tier Typology and Old Testament Salvation. Dr. Renahan seems to suggest he doesn't like the word administer and administration and thinks it, it can be unhelpful and muddy the waters. And I think one of the reasons for that, I'm not saying he's doing this wittingly, but I think it's because they have this concept in their system already. And if you affirm the concept then would you not, uh, the, the word and the concept administration, would you not then affirm its, uh, its partner, if you will, substance? And at that point, if you've got substance and administration, what's meaningfully differentiating you from Reformed Federalism or Westminster Federalism? Uh, that's a question. That's a question I would ask. Do you want to respond to that and, and then go to your question about his book? Right. And, and um, yeah, and I, and I think that, Part of 
of um, what we're wanting to do justice to, I think both sides, is on the one hand, we're wanting to do justice to uh, the Bible's own way of expressing things, um, and uh, as well trying to uh, do the work of systematic theology where we compare different genres of, of uh, biblical literature and we seek to speak to the unity unity across the whole the whole Bible and, and seek to apply it to our own context as well. Um, one of the the things I uh, I appreciate about some of the Southern Baptists is that when you when you do look at uh, particular parts of the Bible like um, like the Book of Hebrews, sometimes it does relate um, the uh, the coming of the New Testament as a promise that it was fulfilled with the, the coming with the coming of Christ, right? And especially in that book, sometimes it does speak as though um, uh, it's it's so emphasizing the imperfection and the inadequacy of the old covenant in relation to uh, the coming of the new that I can understand why they really uh, want to at least do justice to that. And I think in its proper place, I don't, I don't know that we would want to completely um, say that that's impermissible. However, when they really do put their foot down and deny the historic uh, confessional language, then I, I, I am concerned that maybe they're um, they're losing some of the uh, the other portions of the Word of God that keep uh, more of a unity of the cross of this Testament. So. That would be kind of an observation, the sort of thing that I think would lead to more fruitful dialogue if we would maybe um, uh, address the, both the way we speak, but also the um, the matter itself that we're seeking to express. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, thank you for that, brother. Did you want to go to your uh, question about his his book? Correct. So um, I'm just wondering, is there a uh, connection between his work and Meredith Klein's work, because I'm not an expert in Klein, but uh, just some of these things seem to really echo some of uh, the theology that came from him and his successors. So I don't have the book on hand, but I'm almost certain that he does cite Meredith Klein. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Renahan did study at IRBS or whatever it was before it was IRBS. That's out in California, Escondido. And those guys also, from my understanding, they like Meredith Klein. And uh, it's interesting you raise him because I just shared an article and I've seen other guys, other pastors and, and other men sharing it around, um, written by Robert Letham. And uh, I'll admit I've not read the full article, but uh, I do know he talks about Meredith Klein and uh, David Van Drunen and essentially says that they hold to a form of reformed dispensationalism with the way that they view the covenants. I've got a good brother. He's a pastor um, in Indiana, if I'm not mistaken. He loves Meredith Klein and um, you know, I'm just a little I'm 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 reticent. Uh, not just because of maybe some of the way he, he formulates the covenant, but also my understanding is he denied uh, six 24-hour day creation. Anybody who does that in my book, I'm always on my toes. Um, that gives me serious pause. So, yes, I, I do. If I'm not mistaken, I do think that there is 
citation of Klein in his work. Although he also cites Patrick Fairbairn, which is very interesting because I think if you affirm Fairbairn's principles in his typology and you've worked that out consistently, I think you've got to go the Pado-Baptist route. Really interesting, brother. Thank you for that, for that clarification. Yeah, I think one of the, the interesting things about getting into this discussion is it is a century, centuries-long dialogue, right? So we're in dialogue with our own history and, um, and as well as with the, the Baptist tradition and they with their history as well. Um, I think that uh, when we speak about the 20th century and the, and the role of merit of decline and his contribution, I think we do have to just be aware that at that point, uh, theonomy was a, was a big discussion for those who maybe don't run aware of theonomy would have a particular understanding of the, um, the abiding validity of aspects of the Old Testament civil law. And so that's a whole discussion in itself. But I've, uh, from what I understand, you have people like Meredith Klein who are very responding to that. They're very um, concerned to rule that out of balance. And so one of the, the things that is, um, that is urgently pressed by them is that we so emphasize the typological character of the story of Israel that the actual moral significance and the universal significance of those moral principles is is kind of de facto considered out of bounds because it's sort of a, a um it's it sort of has more of a of a picture of prefiguring and uh, bringing about the final eschaton and its judgment right so it, it, it which according to that reckoning is different than the normal standards of human conduct and even in civil civil polity. And uh, I think that we, we should be maybe weary um, for ourselves and, and, and anyone else as well. When we're in the middle of a polemical discussion where maybe people are taking a strong stand on some of these issues that we can sometimes jettison a, a more balanced perspective. So. Um, what I what I would see today is that a lot of people are responding to Klein uh, from the Hill Baptist camp and maybe wanting to relegate any question of the typo typology of the old covenant narrative to the maybe a, a, a more uh, minimal consideration. And I th I think it's it's more about balance, right? The the typo the typology is there and it's significant in its place, but it's to say the whole covenant is merely typological. I think that's a, that's more of a novel view, but uh, perhaps lending itself more towards um, more of a, uh, a, a credo-baptist perspective, because then the actual practical instruction that we'd be receiving from the old covenant would be less um, less binding, I suppose. So that's it's maybe a theory. You raise so many excellent points there. Um, I'm thinking of the scripture. Paul says all that was written before time was written for our learning. And then in Hebrews, especially um, chapter three, verse 12 through four eleven, you've got him appealing to the wilderness generation. And then upon that forming an exhortation, you've got the same thing essentially in first Corinthians chapter 10, where he says, don't be like them. And so they are held forth in the new covenant era as moral examples don't do what they did 
Uh, but to the issue of theonomy, you're saying you know there are there are civil applications, and we can go yes to the judicial law and go to its general equity, and we can pull things from that, and that's not um, that's not scandalous or novel. That has a pretty solid pedigree. So as you were articulating that, I also thought, okay, well, if there is this influence from Klein, how does it come out in 1689? They do emphasize a typological, and you will hear that when they go to define especially the Mosaic Covenant. It's a typological, they'll say, typological covenant of works, to which we would say, well, it's typological, yes, but is it not also moral? Is it not also spiritual? And why, why are we emphasizing certain things over others or to, to the supplanting of others? So just the thought that came to mind, brother, I'll throw it your way. Do you think that 1689 federalism maybe does, like Klein, so emphasizes typological and we could even say temporal, where you inevitably push out or sideline the spiritual? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's that's a really interesting question, brother. I mean, um, I think even sometimes, even in the more confessional, historic, reform camps that that uh, I'm in, and I think that's that's a pejorative way to put it. But uh, let me put it this way: those who would be more in line with, I think, the the Puritans and and the magisterial reformers, at least in in theory, I think we often sometimes just struggle to. Uh, come to the Old Testament just because um, it, it feels sometimes as though it is more historically removed from us. Right? The um, the immediate context is before Christ and we live after, right? And um, yeah, perhaps maybe just more familiarity with the, the four gospels or the or the epistles. And so we feel more more at home there. But I think that as we as we read more in the in the Bible, and particularly as we read how Christ and the apostles treat the Old Testament, I think that's where I think any Christian is going to uh, be pressed to see that these things are for for our our instruction, as you yourself said. Um, and I, what I would what I would urge is that that we treat the Bible as a unity, right? So Paul says, all the scriptures, breathed of God, is inspired, and is profitable for ins uh, ins um, instruction, for proof, for correction, and so on. The man of God may be thoroughly put for every good work, right? And we have to believe that. doesn't mean that we, uh, that we are ignorant of historical circumstances. It doesn't mean that we ignore those things that um, don't fit neatly into our paradigm, but rather through uh, coming to the Old Testament on its own terms and its redemptive historical context and with, um, with its uh, integrity as a, an artifact revelation for the church of all time. That's where I think we're, we're pleased to see its, its usefulness today. And I would just say that, that if we don't do that, right, then I think the danger is that our theology is going to be more informed by our our contemporary context and our old cultural biases, right? That's just the way it is. In some ways, it's unavoidable. But um, we do live in a very individualistic and a very, um, yeah, how should we put it, um, uh, antinomian kind of age, right? 
So uh, it's precisely on those points that I've created familiarity with the Old Testament as well as the New is going to help us, particularly as we see the unity of it. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of uh, thought-provoking uh, material you raised, brother. I agree with you. We are in an antinomian age, and a healthy dose of the Old Testament may be a worthy corrective for some of that. So reviewing this section on the Abrahamic covenant, some of the things we said last time, we say, yes, circumcision had an outward element, national, physical, racial, genealogical, yes, but that's secondary, and the primary always was, by God's design, spiritual, redemptive, uh, covenantal, it's a gospel sacrament, has respect to Christ. And you, if someone would say, well, what's the proof for that? We could say, well, Deuteronomy 10, 16, Moses speaks of it there. Deuteronomy 36, 30, chapter 30, verse 6, Jeremiah 4, 4. And then, of course, the clearest, which we did raise, Michael raised right away, Romans 4, 11. I mean, where Paul says it's a sign and seal of uh, righteousness of faith in and our Baptist brethren come in and say, well, it was that to Abraham because of his faith. It wasn't that of itself objectively. And that's where we, I think we part ways and say, no, the, uh, the, the person who's being baptized is not the one who legitimates or gives spiritual validity to the sacrament. It possesses that in itself, but they still need to appropriate by faith what it's holding, what it's holding forth. So you have these... Um, I would say these errors of emphasis or of misemphasis where you're putting the secondary in the primary spot, inevitably then you push out the primary or you're totally omitting the primary spiritual in this case, the gospel sacrament. And then therefore the secondary becomes primary. Does, do you think that that's fair, uh, Benjamin? Yeah, I, I, I would say so, brother. I think that uh, people, uh, Romans 4 is, is very clear to me when it speaks about the nature of the Abrahamic covenant and circumcision's place in it. Um, yeah, and I, and I think perhaps um, perhaps a part of it is that we do need to uh, define our, ter our terms of, of what we mean sometimes, right? So I was interacting with uh, a Baptist brother uh, actually um, late last week, and um, one of the things that uh, that he sort of bristled at was on the one hand in the discussion I said, well, when we speak about the sign of the covenant, whether circumcision, the old covenant, or, or baptism in the new, we're speaking of something that which is the uh, the seal of regeneration, right, and the seal of the covenant of grace. On the one hand, what, what we're speaking of, of is not a converting ordinance, although, as or rather, it's not as though this is conferring regeneration. It's not as though this is what is actually causing the sinner to uh, receive faith or uh, to receive the righteousness of faith. Um, what, what we are speaking of is that it is, a, it is that which is for the comfort and for the assurance of those who have faith. So by the Holy Spirit, it does grow our faith and it does assure us of um, 
of Christ and his benefits and our, our interest in him. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and I, don't, I don't see that as, as contradictory with saying it's a, a sign and seal of regeneration in the elect uh, because um, where, we're, where we're speaking of as a seal, right? We're speaking of that which is confirming, that which is ratifying the covenant. And much like the uh, the other sacrament, the New Testament, the, the Lord's Supper, um, for those who uh, do not have faith, right, they do not receive the body and blood of Christ, right, as as Christ says, and that is something which which is properly received by believers and by faith. So also, the benefit of of baptism is is only by faith. At the same time, it it does have its uh, proper role. Also for uh, the elect prior to, before their their conversion, I would say, by virtue of what it is, by virtue of it being that which sets forth the promise of God in Christ, it is an occasion for evangelism. It is an occasion of of our pleading the promises of the of the Lord that they're sealed there. But it it is, I would say, it's the, the preaching of the gospel itself, which is that that is appointed to grant faith for those who are a bit of an age of maturity. So um, a, lot, a lot of things there, but I, I do think that, um, that that needs to be said because that is a very clear note from, among our fathers, right? That, that it's, got, it's the preaching that grants faith and the, the sacraments that confirm and strengthen faith. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a very necessary distinction to keep in mind. So let me read this. Fairbairn, Patrick Fairbairn, um, 19th century Scotch Presbyterian. This is from his hermeneutical manual, page 129. Let me read this on circumcision. He says, quote, circumcision was therefore the distinctive badge of Israel, not simply as a separate people, but as God's covenant people called and bound to cast off nature's impurity and walk in righteousness before God, end quote. What is your response to that? Do you give your amen to that quote? Absolutely, brother. I think that's that's exactly it because I don't, uh, yeah, we're, we're wanting it everywhere to see that the Lord is calling those people not just to be a, a mere civil entity, right? But to be the actual church of the Lord, right? And for that reason, you have to see it in its spiritual connection, as indeed, I think that if you read any uh, portion of the Old Testament scriptures, it's always bringing you to that point. What is the Lord doing um, of, a, of a spiritual nature for his own glory in all this? So I, I heartily agree. So let's add one more quote from Fairbairn again, from his Typology of Scripture uh, volume one, page 326. This is a longer quote, but I think it's worth it. We're going to get at this idea of spirituality and uh, what the Lord has designed things to be. He says, quote, the spiritual element was ever to be held the thing of first and most essential moment, and that the natural was only to, to be regarded as the channel through which the other was chiefly to come, and the safeguard by which it was to be fenced and kept. From the first, the call of God made itself known as no merely outward distinction. 
And the covenant that grew out of it, instead of being but a formal bond of interconnection between its members and God, was framed especially to meet the spiritual evil in the world and required as an indispensable condition a sanctified heart in all who were to experience its blessings and to work out its beneficent results. How, indeed, could it be otherwise? How could the spiritual Jehovah, who has from the first creation of man upon the earth, been ever manifesting himself as the Holy One and directing his administration so as to promote the ends of righteousness, how could he enter into a covenant of life and blessing on any other principle? It is impossible, as impossible as it is for the unchangeable God to act contrary to his nature, that the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant of grace and blessing, which embraces in its bosom Christ himself and the benefits of his eternal redemption, could ever have contemplated as its real members any but spiritual and righteous persons. End quote. What about that? What about that quote, brother? What are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's very helpful. I mean, um, yeah, when uh, when you see Paul reflecting back on the old covenant as well, this is very clear, right? Who are the true uh, sons of Abraham, right? There is those who actually uh, have the the grace that circumcision points towards. Um, yes, and so I think that. Um, what what you often see is that any objection to this this recognition of the difference between the visible church, which is a mixed multitude, is a, a group of both converted and unconverted, elect and reprobate, um, and to say that's incompatible with the, the the way the Lord deals with the New Testament. Well, I think we don't also have to say uh, that it it seems to in in one way militate against the essence of the the old covenant as well, that it, it is sort of a um, a, uh, a condescension, if you like, or a, 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 an allowance for human frailty and the way in which human societies work. But for the sake of God, of God's electing, and for the sake of the Lord's purposes, he, can, he permits the, the mixed assembly to exist in order that the um, that that the Lord's purposes would be allowed. But it was always for the sake of the Lord's elect, and also today. So I think that that tends towards the overall coherence of the picture. Um, so yeah, I have I have a question about that word condition, but I'd, I'd be happy if you would to speak to what I've already said first, and then we can come back to that. No, let's go ahead to that word. What's your question? Right, and so um, Michael mentioned it last time. I'd be interested to hear his thoughts on it, but uh, I'm looking at the quote now. Uh, where it speaks of, I believe, the renewed heart and the renewed nature um, as that which is required as an indispensable condition. Right? Oh, yeah, it's a sanctified heart and all who were, would experience uh, its blessings and the work of its beneficent results. So what you do find is in the history of Reformed theology as well as uh, those in the Baptist tradition as well, discussion of the propriety of the word condition tends to um, go through different phases as I as I read different eras, right? Uh, at one point, it will be used in a specific way, and, and then in another time, you'll have uh, solid theologians who in all respects say, no, we don't want to use that word condition anymore. We're going to 
speaking some other way to refer to the, the responsibilities of the covenant. And I think even today it's um, it's sometimes uh, a, a live issue or even a controversial issue that whether we would use that word. But I remember Michael spoke about the propriety of saying that the um, that faith is the sole condition of the covenant of grace. If I remember correctly, Michael can speak for himself maybe at a future date. But how how do you think through that? And are you familiar with some of the the different emphases? Uh, in our fathers on that question. So I'll, I'll answer the second question first. I am mildly familiar that there is disparity uh, among our fathers on this question. Then answering the first question, what, how do I view it? Um, I don't want to be arrogant, but I, I do think if we read the Bible, and I'm not saying set aside our theology, but if we read the Bible as it is, I think actually it's clear that there are two conditions, and I think Francis Roberts bears this out in his uh, his work, God's Covenants, the Mystery and Marrow of the Bible. Namely, faith, yes, that's the primary condition. And second, worthy walking before God. Um, I believe that if you if you read the Bible honestly, you will come away with with those two things. I mean, you think of Matthew 7, what does the Lord say? Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Later, he uses a similar phrase in Luke. He says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? You don't obey me. Uh, Paul, Titus chapter 1, at the end, he says, those who profess to know God, yet they deny him by their works. Uh, as you raised, brother, we're saved on two good works. You think of Titus chapter 2, the end, I think beginning in verse 11, basically says we've been saved, this grace, why? That we would be zealous for good works, that we would deny ungodly lusts and live pure and righteous in the world. So I would actually go, uh, I would go beyond Michael a little bit, but he, I don't know that he would disagree with me either. He may have just been emphasizing the primary condition, which is faith, but I would say it's also worthy walking now if somebody is apprehensive about that well we don't want to introduce anything that we do i i'll be honest i i don't like i don't like that um i think that that type of emphasis goes into hyper calvinism even if you don't mean to and what ends up happening the sheep in the pew just sit there like oh la -di da you know <laughs> it's like no you you they have to do something they have to respond it's required. So, um, and two, you think about it, the Lord, when he works in us, he's enabling us to meet the conditions. He's, it's not like we're drumming up our own power, but it's God at, at work in us, both to will and to do. That's why we can believe. That's why we can walk worthy before him. So if that's, if we need to uh, qualify it that way, that I'm fine with that. So what do you, what do you think, brother? Uh, am I, yeah, brother, brother. Yeah, yeah, brother. I, mean, I, I appreciate what you're saying, particularly with your last emphasis, where there, there's some recognition that these conditions are, in some sense, granted unconditionally, right? When we speak of God's grace in the elect, right? So the key text, of course, being uh, one that we're we're all talking about in this discussion in Jeremiah 31, um, where he says in in verse. 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make 
with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall all, uh, and they shall teach no more and his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them saith the Lord and I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. I think at some point probably we should talk about some of the other implications of that verse but um, clearly there are other portions as well where the emphasis is um, upon God's activity, where he acts uh, prior to and really not in consideration of any activity on our part. Right? So there are promises of the gospel which speak of those benefits which Christ has purchased for us through his death and which are appointed from eternity in God's decree and are uh, given gratuitously by the Holy Spirit uh, acting upon us as as passive, right? So regeneration being the, the obvious thing, that there is no condition upon which regeneration is, is promised in the absolute sense. Regeneration is granted uh, unconditionally, right? Uh, and so when we would therefore speak about, con about the conditions that are obviously proposed in the covenant of grace, you know, believe in your... Uh, so whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? So the condition call upon the name of the Lord. Or you say, um, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And you, and you can multiply the examples also that speak about, you know, our obedience or, or our sanctification, where Jesus says, the one who endures to the end shall be saved, right? In one sense, it's proposed in a conditional conditional form i think that when when i reflect upon it there's there's obviously the spectrum right you'll have william ames who who wants to say well, there's no properly called condition right and then he'll sort of concede well you know if you want to call it a condition then you just have to say there's no prior condition it's more of a following condition right uh, you'll get Herman witsius who will just want to say no there's no condition and uh, i think uh, herman bobbing also is very dogmatic on that no condition on the covenant of grace. Um, I think that for myself, I still favor Turretin, where he'll give like a ton of qualifications and distinctions, but he'll say that, yeah, there's, there's a sense in which we say that it is unconditional as it respects the granting of every grace and unconditional to the elect. There's a sense in which faith is the sole condition of our, of our union with Christ and our, our receiving of justification. There's also a sense in which our repentance and even our obedience and, and our own obedience can be uh, seen as a, as a necessary adjunct to those who have uh, a state of grace and therefore, in one sense, is, uh, is necessary as a duty of, of gratitude and, and a necessary uh, part of those who are redeemed, right? Um, and I think that all those things can be properly put in their respective place. Where people get jumpy, I think, is where we, we get concerns that in aspects of the new perspective position or uh, or the or the uh, the federal vision position that uh, or even uh, some of the um, uh, of the people who um, uh, the name is escaping me but di different people who've fallen afoul of the reformed orthodox uh, what they they really want to do is that there is in some 
proposing in some sense that your faith is a new work or your faith is a new um, condition in parallel with the, the covenant of works in some sense, or even just allowing for something like that. I think that we can we can avoid that or even the appearance of it if if we're really just careful to find what we're saying and uh, and what we're not saying. So some some general thoughts on that. I thank you for that. Uh, you you know more than I do. Uh, I can't tell you offhand who says what. Um, particularly, I know that I've read men on it. So, well, brother, let's move on to the Mosaic Covenant. And um, this is a much larger section, and we'll get right into it with um, how they define the Mosaic Covenant. They define the Mosaic Covenant as a temporal and typological covenant of works for temporal life and blessings in the land of Canaan. So... Just once more, when they say it's a covenant of works, they don't mean like with Adam in the garden. They mean just temporal life in the land of Canaan, respecting temporal blessings. So here's a quote. This is from uh, Brandon Adams in the Two-Tier Typology and Old Testament Salvation uh, podcast or YouTube video. He says, quote, the Old Covenant was a typological covenant of works for temporal life and blessing in the typological Holy Land of Canaan. And it was conditioned upon the outward obedience to Mosaic law, end quote. What do you think about that definition, Benjamin? Yeah, I think a lot of what, what we're saying um, is, uh, is coming to expression as far as our concerns with aspects of this, this system. Um. Yeah, I. If you go I down, think, brother, just this yeah, might help a little bit. Um, the second, it gives I give a further definition of what they mean by outward yeah. obedience. By outward obedience, they mean external, ceremonial obedience. Right. Therefore, the externals of the Mosaic Covenant or the ceremonies are not requiring internals, meaning internal piety. There's no inherent spiritual evangelical experimental religion to the mosaic covenant mm -hmm. in the 1689 formulation if there ever is spirituality it's imported from a foreign source namely from creation uh, if you listen to brandon adams in the same podcast he's very clear about that mosaic covenant is not spiritual and it of itself is not requiring spiritual obedience but we have it present because of creational requirements which i think i saw you smiling a little bit i have to smile myself as well i mean it's to be frank i think they recognize it would be a serious error to say there's no spirituality and so they've got to get it in there somehow but you can't have it in the nature of the mosaic covenant because that would that would tear apart their whole system go ahead brother correct yeah i um, yeah, I, I was wondering how they would even account for something like the Psalms. Um, uh, I think we touched on that last episode as well. When we when we would come to the, the Book of Psalms and we would see the heartbeat of the Lord's people throughout all the ages in which the Psalms were composed, you know, Moses wrote Psalm ninety. Most of the others written by David or or his contemporaries. Some written during the exile, but 
what you do see is that in the um, in the piety of the Lord's people, there's such an ex an experiential acquaintance with what we would we would frankly call the Christian life, right? Of battling temptations and and desiring holiness, desiring to please the Lord, desiring to mean the Lord, but but frankly, always through and in the uh, the covenant of grace, always through and in a mediator and and a God who promises grace to the unworthy. Um, and um, yeah, I think that to me, the just the putting seeing it put this way just makes me uh, frankly sad and concerned. I mean, I, I do think that um, when you look at the way in which our, our fathers have spoken about Mosaic uh, Covenant, I think that there there is a, a willingness to see that there's a special purpose in revealing the holiness of God in the law, right? We have Mount Sinai, we have the thunder and the lightning and the, the dark mountain. We have... Um, Many things which which do set forth uh, the the law and its um, and its requirement for obedience. You have those passages which Paul quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, from the latter latter portion. Verses: Everyone who continues not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. Right, and uh, I think in the context of what Paul uses, he uses that to illustrate the, the covenant of works. Right, and um, let me just read a little bit from from Romans chapter 10 uh, just to understand what some of the things we're, we're grappling with here. So in Romans uh, chapter 10 in verse 5 it says for Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law that the man which, which doeth those things shall live by them quoting from Leviticus 18 verse 5. For the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, and goes uh, on to, to describe also a long quotation from the book of Deuteronomy itself. Uh, say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring up Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith that the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, preach that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So uh, I don't think we would we would want to deny at all that um, the law and its requirements and in its condemning power is certainly something revealed um, in, the, in the time of Moses and by Moses himself. And uh, we would want to say, indeed, that that is something which leaves the sinner um, uh, convicted of their state of condemnation. Right? But when we would look at it in its totality, right? When we would look at that in its connection, for example, with the animal sacrifices, when we'd look at it in connection with the Exodus out of Egypt itself and the words of, of Jehovah, um, where he says, uh, I am the Lord thy God, which had brought thee out of the land of Egypt, the Lord thy God. And in particular, as, as he makes uh, frequent references to the Abrahamic covenant, of which we've already spoken, I think the, the proper way to understand it is that those things which would reveal the condemning power of the law and even 
the uh, the condemning power of it for those who are yet under the covenant of works from their father Adam. But those things are always subservient to driving us to the, the promise of salvation in the, the Messiah who was to come. And um, I think that's the way to understand some of those in antithesis that are drawn in, in Paul's own dealings with this question, even in other passages where it says that the law came through Moses, but grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not saying that grace and truth were absent prior to uh, the coming of Christ, right? But saying that there, there was a sense in which the, the law um, was revealed in a special way in the, in the time of Moses. I think the danger is really uh, in more of an imbalanced perspective where we make that, that's the whole story, that's all that's going on here. And in so doing, I think, uh, neglect other important emphases within the scriptural teaching on this point, which are better served by, by observing that distinction between the substance and administration of these historical uh, covenants. Yeah, and I hear you there bringing out, once again, the need I mean, the vital need, really, to get our emphases in the right order. Otherwise, we can go astray. I would say we could even go astray so far as the Jews did. Uh, even in the, the passage you cited, uh, Romans 10, if you go back to verse 3, he says of the Jews, they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In other words, saying, well, they had God's law. They had even, yes, I believe the gospel, the promises of God. That wasn't sufficient. They wrested that from what it was supposed to be and then said, I'm going to establish my own righteousness instead of believing. Interesting note, too, on uh, Deuteronomy 30, which is where that quote comes from, uh, in heaven, and um, the word is near unto thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart, for to do it. The Geneva Bible notes uh, on uh, the word that is in uh, your mouth and in your heart to do it, they say is the law and the gospel. Mm. Which, which it must be. It must be, right? Like, how is it that Paul could use the text in that way, if not that he was saying that the, um, the Mosaic Covenant was a gracious covenant for those who received it in faith, right? Received it in the context of the promises given to Abraham and to his seed, right? Ultimately, the, the real burden of Paul in Romans and Galatians and so forth is that we not divorce the law from it's it's proper use, uh, which is to drive us to the Lord. Even right right before the passage, which I uh, I read, it says in verse four, uh, chapter ten, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Right? Mm -hmm. And and so I think that's what we're what we're getting when we put all the things together. And um, yeah, early on we took we talked about uh, the danger of a kind of reformed dispensationalism, right? And, and not not only from people who come from a Baptist persuasion, but also from a Peter Baptist persuasion. Why is why is that a problem, right? Well, we think we, we're we're concerned about so ripping apart the unity and consistency of Scripture 
that we're we're left with something which is which is not faithful to its original intent and and towards our um, our own spiritual good today. So that's really the burden of, of uh, this discussion. Amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so we would say to this definition of the covenant as being a temporal covenant of works for temporal life and blessings in the land of Canaan. I think much the same that we said concerning the Abrahamic covenant and circumcision, uh, which is that, well, we don't deny that there are temporal elements. What we deny is that it's mainly or merely temporal. Um, that, that just simply cannot be. Would you agree with that, brother? Absolutely. Like even if you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, right? The, there's there's an emphasis on this on the spiritual as primary while also giving temporal blessings their proper place right so um jesus says you know don't, don't worry about your clothing and your and your food and so forth seek ye first the kingdom of god and all these things shall be added unto you right and the idea is that all things are ordered in, in god's decree and according to god's providence for our spiritual good that these things are to be received in their place with, with thanksgiving, but where we understand that the, the same God of salvation is also um, is also the God of providence and of creation. Then, then the the bright use of of temporal blessings are put in their place, right? And so, I I think in the same way, you don't want to adopt the kind of Gnostic view, which relegates good gifts from God as something that's somehow illegitimate in the Christian life, right? We're, we're also not wanting to jump at the um, those things which are um, material or national or temporal blessings as though saying that they're therefore not spiritual if they're received in faith, right? But the blessings of the land in Canaan, yeah, there, there's all sorts of things going on there, but certainly in, in one sense, uh, it, it was to grant the, the people got that that point those um, those blessings, which would be useful for them to worship and serve God and to uh, raise a godly seed, right? And so, uh, in that sense, we can also see that they're relevant uh, in informing how we use these things today. Amen. So let's go to the next section, uh, really the next point under the Mosaic Covenant, and um, it's this. This is how they define. The obedience they say that the mosaic covenant demands an obedience an unbeliever could render uh in particular what they mean by that is is it's like a civic good so like a father who you know gives his son a piece of bread something like that uh which there is such a category i just want to make that clear like generally there is such a category as that we could find that in our reformed fathers that's not the question. The question is actually, is that definitive of the nature of the obedience of the Mosaic Covenant? So just to, em to emphasize, this is Dr. Samuel Rinehan, page 111 of his work, The Mystery of Christ. He says, quote, the obedience demanded was an obedience an unbeliever could render, end quote. And he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant there. And he says that like four or five, maybe six times in that two-tier typology in Old Testament salvation video. What do you think, Benjamin, about this assertion of the obedience of the Mosaic Covenant, what it was demanded, that even an unbeliever could satisfy the obedience demanded by the Mosaic Covenant? 
Well, I think I would, I would just go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And so what Jesus will refer to as the first and great commandment, really a summary of the, the first commandment, but also the first table of the law. And uh, I, I would just challenge people, is it really the case that... Um, that we could say that an unbeliever could perform that. Is that just merely civic virtue if we love the Lord our God with all of our heart? It reminds me a little bit about, um, I, don't, I don't really follow uh, Dennis Prager or or um, some of the programs of, um, of, uh, of Jordan Peterson very closely, but I noticed that one of the things that went viral is that there was a discussion where Jordan Peterson has a, sort of Gnostic kind of a strange character of all that kind of union interpretation of, of the scriptures. He had this whole panel discussion of different um, commentators on the Old Testament, not one of which was an evangelical Christian, by the way, which is interesting. But he asked Dennis Prager, who's a prominent conservative Jewish commentator, about, um, yeah, about aspects of the moral law. And it's like, yeah, it's just externals, right? And he's coming out saying, well, this is why, you know, adultery is wrong, but pornography is okay, right? This is, it's just about your external behavior, right? Horrifying, horrifying for anyone who's has a genuine heartbeat for the, for, for God and, and his experimental knowledge of things. But really just, it should be horrifying to anyone who can just read, read the language there, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Can't get more clear than that, and yeah, that's that's just the um, but that's more what what I what I see as which is particularly troubling, because um, on one level, you know, uh, just saying that the Mosaic covenant was a was a covenant of works, right? You might you might be able to get away with that and not have that much in, impede your daily piety as long as you kept that sealed from maybe some of the implications of it but once you say it's a covenant of works and let's redefine what that means right it's it's merely the civic righteousness right then therefore the, the whole spiritual use of reflecting on the covenant of works becomes minimized right because the point about reflecting on the covenant of works how we've not kept it indeed that we can't keep it in our um, and uh, there's only one who has kept it that's the lord jesus christ it's a it's a very important uh, way of guarding the gospel, right? Which is to put the um, the freeness of grace in Christ and the unmerited nature of that for the sinner in stark relief and stark contrast to the strict requirement of the covenant of works. It's very um, humbling and very uh, very important for even just uh, coming to grips with these things in our in our own lives. And so that that's where I, I see some of the danger, and and frankly, I do I do also see that with um, some even people in our own camp, right? You have people like um, John Murray in the, in the last century, just saying, yeah, I don't even know I I believe in the covenant of works, and you know maybe I'll just redefine everything. Um, you get other people who who so shrink its its um, its significance really that it almost doesn't exist. And I've 
I think that's that's what I what I would consider to be very dangerous. We ought to we ought to guard that doctrine and to resist its being watered down in any way. Yeah, I think it's it's Wilhelmus of Rockle, right, who emphasizes that understanding the covenant of works is actually essential to understanding the covenant of grace. And I would agree with that. I mean, you look at Romans chapter five, it's it's obvious. Paul contrasting Adam uh, with Christ. And you have to understand covenant of works to understand fully the covenant of grace. You know, and this idea of uh, what I would call external unbelieving obedience. Jehovah is willing to accept in the Mosaic covenant by virtue of the Mosaic covenant, external unbelieving obedience, according to 1689 federalism. What you then necessarily have, because remember, we say that they also import spirituality from creation. You've got these two things happening simultaneously, these two ways of uh, relating to God religiously, which can be true for, for one person at the same time. One, creation, which is God's requiring spirituality, two, the Mosaic Covenant, which is not spiritual. So then you say, okay, I'm a believer in the Mosaic Covenant. I'm bringing my burnt offering and my peace offerings and my thank offerings. But I can't put spirituality into this because God hasn't designed it that way, right? Would that not be unlawful? Would it not be unlawful to take the spirituality of, of creation and import it and impose it onto the nature of the sacrifices in the Mosaic Covenant? If God hasn't designed it for that purpose, we don't want to go beyond what the Lord has said. I mean, Deuteronomy 12 32 you know do not add thereto nor take away from and i'm not meaning to be um you know uh facetious or whatever but i am trying to press the logic of this and say this is where it goes i i think this is what you have to inevitably affirm if you're going to say these things do you think that's fair yeah i'm concerned about it like one of the things I was talking with one brother about this a, a while back, and he said that the, the real question revolves on, around this. Why exile? Why exile, right? So um, are we are we going to say that there's just a lack of the civil obedience, right? Um, but that's that's ultimately all that, that's involved there. And uh, I don't I don't think that there's justice at all to what what you find where there's reflection upon the exile and uh, the prophecies Jeremiah, for example, right? I think that the, the lament is much more fundamental than that, which is that, that there is um, a betrayal of the, the actual bond and relationship between Jehovah and his people of a very personal nature. And that ultimately the, the, the fundamental sin is one of unbelief, right? That if um, there had been um, that there had been that trust in in the Lord, right? Then these then disobedience and apostasy would not have followed, right? And uh, yeah, like I I wouldn't want to completely uh, say that there's no revelation of of say that the punishment of, and judgment of of sinners uh, re revealed in the exile that might have relations to the covenant of marriage, right? I mean, you think about. So often the the day of uh, the exile being consummated is called the day of the Lord, right? And we know that those are preludes to the ultimate day of the Lord in which the judgment 
merited and, and deserved by the covenant of works upon the um upon the reprobate will be will be visited in, in an exquisite fashion and that will be the consummate expression of the lord's wrath for their sinners um, so um yeah but i think that in in some ways this is the worst of all worlds right because you're losing that simplicity of the, the fact that um the greatest sin of all is rejecting the overtures of mercy in, in the gospel, which I think is set forth in the exile, but also the um, yeah the, the just judgment for uh, those who are in the covenant of works in the, in the pure sense. So I think to kind of make it kind of a combination of the two, that it's sort of obedience, but not, but not really that's required, and that's why all these things happen. Like, it, to me, it goes against the grain of, of things, and, and as I say, it it seems to just drive us very far away from that, which is actually spiritually profitable about the Old Testament. I think you're 100% right. And um, you raised a point of unbelief. And it's not even a question in what I've read and listened to from the 1689 Federalists. It's like, this is where I do think you have to bring in doctrine um from other places you know you have to bring in systematics and so we say okay if someone does obey the lord how do they do that well they do that by faith they're enabled by faith to obey the lord well, if someone's disobeying the lord where does that come from well that comes from unbelief so if we see them disobeying lord our our first assumption i think should be well they're they're in unbelief they're not actually believing in the Lord and what he said, whether it's a, a promise or a command that he's he's given them to do. And we see that um, borne out in, in in Hebrews chapter three, verse 12 through four, 11, where it says the gospel was preached to the wilderness generation, but it did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard. And therefore, God said, you're not entering my rest. So from the very beginning, in my opinion, I don't think that this conception and definition of the Mosaic Covenant, and namely of its obedience, can even make it one step because they couldn't even get into the land. Um, they were actually forbidden from, from going into the land. Why? Because they did not believe the gospel. And then if you look at Deuteronomy 9, for example, um, the Lord says to them, you know, this is just before they're going into the land with Joshua. Deuteronomy 9, uh, beginning in verse 3, I'm reading from the Geneva. Understand, therefore, that this day the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire. He shall destroy them, that is, the nations in Canaan, and shall bring them down before thy face. So thou shalt cast them out and destroy them suddenly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. Then he gives a warning. Speak not thou in thine heart. After the Lord thy God hath cast him out before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought thee in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord hath cast them out before thee. For thou entrust not to inherit their land for thy righteousness or for thy upright, for their upright heart, but for the wickedness of those nations. The Lord thy God doth cast them out from before thee, and that he might perform the word which the Lord thy God sware unto thy fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, understand, verse 6, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Mm -hmm. So right, right from the get-go, 
um, Lord saying, no, it's not because of your works. So if it's not because of their Eve, we could, if you want to distinguish that righteousness that the Lord is saying, it's, is not the cause of this between evangelical and civic. I think we could say both of them are ruled out. It's irrelevant. Whether you want to say it's, it's an evangelical or gospel obedience, or you just want to say it's a civic type of righteousness. It doesn't matter because God rules it out and says, I'm performing my word. I'm being faithful. Um, so do you think that all of that's fair? Yeah, I, I think, I think that follows brother, like Deuteronomy would be the, the book that you would go to if you were going to say that, that it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's all about obedience, right? Because it's obviously stressed hugely, right? You know, keep the commandments, keep the commandments, you know, I'm the word god and so forth and there's there's cursings for disobedience and there's blessings for obedience and so forth um but even there when you when you pay attention to some of these details right the overall coherence of everything that's happening wouldn't wouldn't really make sense if uh you were to say that this is straightforwardly the covenant of works you know uh full stop right um even if in and, and that's why they're having to qualify and say, well, not that sense of, of works, right? And then, and then I think we're just left with with, with some confusion. Um, yeah, you mentioned Lahamas Abraco at, at some point, and he's the most uh, methodologically um, um, predisposed to say that the covenant of, with Moses is the, the covenant of grace. If you read through him, he's very methodologically um zealous for that particular point that really there's a, at every point you can you can see it in relation to the um uh to the covenant of grace at work in the in the believer whether it's in their ongoing sanctification or in their initial justification or in or in uh, some other aspect of the lord's grace to his people but i think he would he would also be the, the first to acknowledge that for those people who were not elect within the mosaic covenant right that the the binding nature of the covenant of, of works upon them was still operative right? that the law uh just received in that sense right would it would be a covenant that uh would would condemn them in in their uh, state of, under the covenant of, of works right and one of, and different people have different ways of emphasizing that uh how is it the covenant of works relates to us today the way brothel deals with it if i, I remember correctly is to say that you know we, we need to recognize that it's still required today for those who are outside of Christ, right? Um, now uh, it's true that we can't live up to those requirements. It's certainly true that we can't attain blessing by it because uh, a we're 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 inheriting original sin from our father Adam and the original guilt for his transgression. B we can't atone for even a single sin that we have committed, and and uh, C we're um, unable to perform a true good work in true sincerity and purity because of our, our indwelling corruption. But for all that, the covenant of works still addresses us with the requirement to obey and the um, holding forth the punishment for disobedience. So when seen in that light, it, it would seem to me that even the Brockle would have to say that all of the talk of the law and all the talk of the, you know, the blessings and the cursing, right? still is a, a function even for those who are who are in that sense outside the covenant of grace as far as saving benefit so 
just to say that these things are not simple. Even in our understanding, I don't think they'd want to say it's a simplistic understanding of any of these things, but one that I think is more um, cohesive in, in the long run, right? If we're saying that there's a lot, there's many, there's several things going on here, it ultimately is still uh, self-consistent with itself, and I, and I don't think that's necessarily true with some of the, the characterizations that we're seeing from the other side. Yeah, I, I very much would agree with Abrakel, uh, or Abrakel, I'm not sure how you say that last name, um, that the Mosaic Covenant uh, is an administration of the Covenant of Grace. I would just as equally want to zealously guard that as it sounds like uh, he would, because I think if you if you say it's not, you can go to some very bad, very bad places if you press that consistently. So let's come to this next point on this, the Mosaic Covenant. So we've got first, it's a temporal covenant of works for temporal life and blessings in the land of Canaan. Second, it demands an obedience that an unbeliever could render. And third, this is coming from Brandon Adams. He says that it's a heightened common grace covenant that has heightened common grace blessings. Now, of course, common grace as distinct from special grace. Benjamin, are you familiar with that distinction? I, I am, yes. Would you, would you elaborate on that for us just a little bit? Certainly. Um, this also has a is one of those words which um, sometimes uh, causes people to bristle or sometimes makes people very excited with, with joy, depending on maybe your tradition. Uh, I would say that uh, you tend to get a lot more discussion of, about term common grace through the work of, of neo-Calvinists like Abraham Piper and um, Herman Bovink and some of their successors. And to, to varying degrees of um, of success, what they're they're wanting to say is that there is a um, there is a way in which God deals with humanity as humanity, which confers temporal blessings that are non-salvific and non uh, and, and do not have reference to the eternal state of blessedness of, of the Lord's elect. So, classic text would be where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, your heavenly father causes the, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, right? And uh, as well, you you get, as it becomes increasingly prominent, especially in denominations like the CRC, you also have people who really bristle at it and say, we're losing the particularity of grace as such, right? And others who say, well, we should, we should use a different term like common goodness, or, or something like that. I don't have a problem with the, the term provided that we're, we're understanding it um, uh, in, in, a, in a proper way and not confusing uh, it with saving grace, which I think sometimes has been done. And it sounds like here it's, it's doing a fair bit of work for them. And um, yeah, I'm immediately not, not clear what to make of it. What do you think about it? Well, the short of it is, I believe it's really a restatement of the first point. Um, you even, as you are articulating some things, you use that word temporal to speak of what we mean by common grace. And you gave the example, God gives the rain even to the unjust. You know, uh, he might give them a family. He might give them children, so on and so forth. You know, these are, there are these uh, 
non-special grace blessings, i.e. common grace, kindnesses, goodnesses of the Lord, um, which the unbeliever doesn't thank him for. So it's just a restatement, in my opinion, of the concept, but I think it helps to really kind of clarify and give another shade to it. Because if they're saying it's a common grace covenant with common grace heightened, excuse me, heightened common grace covenant that has heightened common grace blessings, then they're necessarily saying, and I don't believe this is a reach, that it is not a special grace covenant mm. comprehending special grace blessings, right? They're defining it. This is what it is, common grace. Well, then you begin to ask questions. What's what do we mean by special grace? Well, we mean you know God's saving benefits, um, how someone's saved, and what accompanies that mm -hmm. peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, forgiveness of sins, so on and so forth. So, once again, if the Mosaic Covenant is a common grace plus a common grace covenant, therefore not a special grace covenant, therefore it doesn't have those things endemic to it. How do they get there? How's anybody under the Mosaic Covenant going to be saved? Mm. And I can already imagine there. Well, they're going to say, well, there's the covenant of grace revealed. They're going to say that. And um, the new covenant, which is in their system, the covenant of grace is retroactively applied. Mm -hmm. The issue I take with that is if it's retroactive for saints then that means it was then present and so to me it's the semantic um i don't know if you want to call it a sleight of hand or it's this semantic formulation that helps to give the appearance that they're differentiated from us but really what they're saying is there is this persistent spiritual substance that saves and it was present in the mosaic covenant but it's not in the very nature of the Mosaic Covenant. Are you following me, brother? Am, am I getting too I, abstract? No, I've, no I've, I actually I follow, follow you clearly. I know it's it's a bit complicated. It's just, I think it's because I was thinking very clearly about Pascal Gennel's book and trying to articulate exactly what, what, what you're articulating, I think, quite well, which is that um, it seems as though they're, they're just straining to look at it from, from a non-solvent salvific point of view right i think that the way that the the clarity and unity of the whole bible comes to the fore is we see that the salvation of of god's elect in christ is the the heart of of the whole thing and so when we define one thing as as the substance and another thing as the administration we're not being arbitrary in that because the the whole bible is about christ um if uh, if you're going to grab hold of, of this or that aspect of the of the mosaic covenant and say this is the most fundamental part of it this is the substance of the covenant then i think if if, if you're not making it god's god salvation of his elect through christ then on what basis do you say that is the, the substance of it why do you say that is that which everything else is subservient to within that covenant and i think this has kind of been the criticism of what common grace does which is it brings out of focus the um the salvation of of uh, the lord's people as the primary thing right the, the 
the um, even in the life of the church, right? Um, the criticism in the CRC, uh, Christian Reformed Church, at that at that point, was that this is coming in to take the focus off of the gospel, off of the, um, the important work of discriminating preaching and discerning the the work of grace and and the Lord's people, and it's all about all these other things, right? Which we're going to consider apart, quite apart from. Uh, the, those things, right? And uh, and then you get, of course, different reactions to that, which are over overly balanced. Here, I think it's it's you know it's not really being proposed as though it were a good thing. It's more so talking about how do we make sense of what was going on back then. But even so, I think that the end result is still con confusion, right? Um, it's a it's a word common grace that. If you're not handling it very precisely, and I think restrainedly, then you can just you can get yourself widely off track, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. You you carry these identity markers through, and uh, you can shake the whole boat. So, following that, then their next point. So you've got just review. It's a temporal covenant of works for temporal life and blessing in the land of Canaan demands an obedience that even an unbeliever could render is a heightened common grace covenant that has heightened common grace blessings. And this next point, it does not save. And what they would say, as far as I've heard them and read them, is that the Mosaic covenant does not save. Only the new covenant saves. And how I would respond to that is... Um, two ways number one covenants don't save god saves uh now the the how he's the covenant apparatus if you will is how he saves yeah but it's god who saves second conceptually what they mean here in my opinion would be the covenant abstracted from the efficacy of the holy spirit doesn't save does that make sense Yep. So I think we would both say, yeah, amen. Actually, if you're going to, if you, if, if that's what you mean conceptually by those terms, we would agree. And I would even be willing to extend that to the new covenant. I would say the new covenant abstracted from the efficacy of the Holy Spirit is not going to save. If you've got preaching, there's the new covenant being held forth. If you've got the Lord's Supper, you know, there's the, the new covenant meal being held forth. But that doesn't save of it of itself it doesn't have power in and of itself the holy spirit has to bless and then you have to exercise faith so this is where i think you've got equivocation i think they're saying something they think differentiates them from us but conceptually when you get under the term and beyond the rhetoric and you get to the concept you're like well no actually we agree with you what do you think about all that yeah i i I track with you, brother. I think, um, yeah, I, the, ultimately, I, I think back even if you abstract it from the person of Christ himself, right? I uh, think that's also an, an, uh, an issue you could say. Like Isaiah says, uh, he is given as a covenant to the people, right? And uh, yeah, the external uh, form of, of the covenant, the ex having it presented to you and so forth whereas not actually being bonded to him in true faith i think that's that makes all the difference 
completely. And I think the, the concern is that if you don't have a category four, those who are, you know, um, not actually appropriating the covenant while still professing to do so, then uh, it might just lead to a lot of presumption and, and confusion in the church today. So I think that's this is going coming back to some of the things we mentioned in the first uh, episode as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, brother, it's been about 90 minutes. Um, I think it'd be a good good place for us to wrap up. Uh, we can maybe both give just our our last words here. I'll go I'll go first. Um, you know, one of the thing that, things that that keeps jumping out to me is um, getting our emphases right. What does the Bible say? You know, what is is circumcision external? Are we really to think of it like that's what that's really what it's about? Or do we need to go to Paul in Romans 4.11 and say, no, it, it's a gospel sign. It's a gospel sacrament. That's the first thing. Second thing is um, we need to be careful how we're defining things. Because um, if you're defining something as temporal fundamentally uh, or as a heightened common grace covenant, that would then have ramifications down the line. And um, we're seeing some of these some of these things coming out. And just the third thing I would say, which, you know, we both raised, but you especially have given attention to a number of times is that the religion of our fathers was spiritual and you have to have that. And you see that, for example, in the Psalms, you see experimental piety so clearly there. And to say that their religion was carnal, it just, it doesn't jive with that. But then also, it, it doesn't really even make sense for all Paul's exhortations in the New Testament. Everything that was written aforetime was written for our learning. You know, how does spirituality get there? Do we just superimpose it from the New Covenant era back on there? I don't see that taking place. It's it's there inherently. It's what it, it's what it was about. So those are, um, I guess, those are the parting parting words. I especially want to give attention to that. That that I do believe that it, it was it was spiritual, and to not see that uh, is a grievous mistake that can have dire consequences. What what brother would you want to leave us with with uh, the final words here as we close? Yeah, brother. I think I think that there's some some good things drawing out here. Um, yeah, I, th- I think what I maybe end with would be a gesture of. Um, of goodwill to our Baptist brothers, which is that I think I would want to, and I think you do would as well, draw a difference between what uh, what they affirm and a consequence of what they might affirm, right? So I think yes. that um, I think what what we're saying is that overall there's a lot of questions here, uh, and I think inconsistencies as well. And so, but we're also not saying that you follow every, everything that we're laying out here to its logical conclusion as we see it. At the same time, I think that uh, our burden is to make sure that um, things uh, cohere in the way that the, the Lord would have it to, because the Lord is not the author of confusion, right? So on both sides of the issue, and indeed every issue, we need to be willing to check our premises, check our tradition, and make sure that we're not imposing something on the word of God. So pray that the Lord will guide us into his truth in that matter and give us all willingness to hear the Lord speak in these things. 
Amen. Thank you for that reminder. I fully agree with you. Um, that's a good distinction to have in mind what someone's saying, where it goes. So, well, that'll be it for us. On behalf of myself and Benjamin, thank you for listening to Old Pass Podcast. We trust that the Lord will use us for your spiritual profit. We hope to see you again. God bless. Bye now.